candidates have been making their final push with the polls opening this morning in these crucial midterm elections. Many in the state say this election is one of the most consequential in their lifetime. At the top of people's minds, inflation and abortion. Well, Republicans are banking on a red wave to carry them back into power this election day, according to most polls. This is going to be a wake-up call to President Biden, and I hope he answers it. This is a tough election season. It's a midterm election, uh, but I still see a pathway for us to maintain control of the Senate. Again, we heard six months ago it's going to be a massive red tsunami. Then we heard Democrats were going to hold their own. The outcome is going to shape our country for decades to come. And the power to shape that outcome is in your hands. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and it is 12.30 a.m. on the East Coast election night. And this is a special episode. I'm going to do the Stephen A. Smith style just on my own to give you 10 takeaways from what we know so far about these races across the country. And let me start with the biggest one, which is a lot of people thought, I thought, most people in my life, most people on TV thought this was going to be what they call a red wave, which is traditional, is that whenever the president's in power, whoever the party out of power is, usually has a really good night in that first midterm election. And actually, in the 22 midterm elections from 1934 to 2018, the president's party has averaged a loss of 28 House seats and four Senate seats. What we know right now is there is no way that Joe Biden and Democrats are going to perform anywhere near that average. They are outperforming the historical average for presidents in a midterm year. And to put it in the words of Tim Alberta, who's a longtime political observer, he said, this is not a red tsunami. In fact, it might be shaping up as the best midterm cycle for an incumbent president's party since the rally around the flag election of 2002. That was the Bush race after 9-11. There was also one of the other outliers was uh, Bill Clinton in the middle of the impeachment. He had a better than normal midterm election. But most of the midterm elections in my lifetime are what they call shellackings, thumpins, I think Bush called it. The shellacking was what uh, Obama called his midterm election. This is a true shocker. Uh, most Democrats in my life were despondent. Most Republicans were giddy about tonight. And it looks like it is a possible, uh, right now, a narrow uh, GOP pickup of the House of Representatives and uh, too close to call right now in the Senate right now. And Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican, put it this way. He says it's definitely not a Republican wave. That's for darn sure. He predicts they're going to be at 51 to 52 Senate seats when it's all done. So that's the first takeaway. Not a red wave. Maybe it's a red drizzle. Maybe it's a red puddle. But we don't. We certainly can't say it's a wave. Number two big takeaway. This is likely a narrow GOP pickup in the House what was projected was going to be much bigger. And what happened is a lot of Democratic, these sort of bellwether seats where Democrats were playing a lot of defense, in large part, they they won and played that defense effectively. The biggest one people were watching early in the night was Abigail Spanberger in Virginia. She won. Uh, there was also this race in Rhode Island where Democrats really had no business being in trouble in Rhode Island. And the Republicans seemed like they were very, very bullish on winning this seat. They invested a lot of money in it. But Seth Magaziner, that's the Rhode Island 2, won that race. A whole bunch of races seem to be falling like this. And right before I went to sit down for this podcast, Nate Cohn from the New York Times, who's their big data guy, said the following. He says there's not going to be a call in the House anytime soon. 
and the possibility of a democratic win isn't a theoretical proposition at this point. The GOP edge depends a lot on Western races where we're not going to know the result for a while and often where they're already behind. So we don't know the House yet, but Democrats seem to be in a better position. I'll come back to what the dynamics of the House leadership will look like because that'll be fascinating. But let's talk about the Senate. That's my third takeaway. The Senate is going to come down to four key states right now. Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Wisconsin. New Hampshire, which is Maggie Hassan, she's going to keep that seat. Pennsylvania looks like it's going to go to Fetterman, which is a true shocker and a real indicator that debates do not matter. Because if we're all honest, like no matter what your politics are, that was not a strong performance for Fetterman. But it doesn't seem right now that the voters penalized him for that, or they didn't penalize him enough for him to cost them the election. These four races, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, and Wisconsin, are pretty close. Wisconsin is the only one of those that right now isn't a toss-up. That's lean Ron Johnson, the Republican incumbent, as I'm sitting here right now. It seems like it's possible that Barnes could pull up some kind of upset. There's still a lot of votes left in Milwaukee, but... If I were a betting man, I would say Johnson is going to win that race. But you've got these three seats. Democrats just need to win two of them, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. And Arizona is interesting because it's out west, but it's what we call a blue shift state, which means that the absentee ballots get dropped first, which tend to favor Democrats. So the numbers that we're looking at right now, as I sit down for this recording, look very positive for Democrats. But what I've been cautioning Democrats all night on is those numbers will shift. Now, will they shift enough to give the Senate over to Blake Masters? Who knows? Uh, you may know by the time you listen to this podcast. I doubt it. Georgia is interesting because that is a neck and neck race and one that requires 50% plus one in order to avoid a runoff. And there's a libertarian candidate who's getting somewhere between one and two percentage of the vote the last time I checked. So if that continues and that race continues to be 49-49, ish, which is where it is right now, then that will go to a runoff. That's a, about a month runoff. So it'll be a shorter runoff period than what we've seen before. We don't know a whole lot about Nevada, although John Ralston, who if you if you listen to our podcast the past few weeks, you know, the guru on Nevada politics and polling data, seemed to be pessimistic about Democrats' chances earlier today by some of the numbers he was seeing. But he caveated that by saying he was often comparing numbers to 2018 numbers. And obviously, we've had a pandemic in between 2018 and now, and voting habits have changed. The biggest voting habit that changed was that people uh, send an early vote, an absentee vote, and that is not factored into some of the data we're seeing right now. We don't know like how to think about what possibility of early vote is and how that affects election day vote. So the Senate is up for grabs. Number four, this is not all good news for Democrats. Big trouble in Florida for Democrats. DeSantis looks set to win by roughly 20 points in Florida. He crushed Charlie Crist. And just to give you some perspective, he beat Gillum uh, in his last race, DeSantis did, by 30,000 votes in 2018. And he could defeat Charlie Crist by over 1.5 million votes this time. And that's a number that we have at 97% of votes reporting. For comparison, Trump won Florida by just over 3% in 2020. Democrats have real issues with the Hispanic vote, no matter you know, what red wave, no red wave, et cetera. Florida 
is not looking great for the future for Democrats. A state that used to be the bellwether 50-50 state has been trending away from Democrats. This is a huge trend away from Democrats. And Miami-Dade County, which traditionally has gone for Democrats, has now flipped and DeSantis won Miami-Dade County. And this is the first time in a long time that uh, a Democrat has not held any statewide office in Florida. So this is big trouble for the Democrats. But let me get to my number five here on this DeSantis point. This is shaping up to be post-election. DeSantis emerging strong and Trump emerging weak, with Trump set to announce a week from now, in all likelihood, his intention to run for president. He says he has a big announcement a week from now. And so what I'm hearing from a lot of people on the right is, and this is grass tops right-wing commentary, is that people are going to blame Trump for weak, as what they see weak candidates like Oz, They're going to look at DeSantis and say, this guy is strong. He's crushing it in Florida. He shows that he he has some appeal. And it really is in DeSantis's court to say, am I ready to take on this Herculean character within the right in Trump? And a big question I have is, what is grass tops versus grassroots? Like, I know I get the sense that the Daily Wires of the world, the national reviews of the world are pretty explicitly flacking for DeSantis at this point, how much is that going to matter given Trump's pull on the base? Most polls we've seen are pretty dominant in Trump's favor. So this is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. And I think it would be crazy for DeSantis not to jump in, jump in here given his standing, but who knows? And w- one of the fascinating things about this Trump-DeSantis showdown is Trump essentially threatened DeSantis earlier this week, quote, if he did run... I'll tell you things about him that won't be flattering. I know more about him than anybody other than perhaps his wife, who is really running his campaign. So, you you know, we know Trump well enough to know where we're going with this. This is, he's trying to Ted Cruz DeSantis. You know, I think he already came up with a nickname for DeSantis, uh, DeSanctimonious, which is a bigger vocabulary word that I thought would have been introduced this early in the, in the primary season. But this is going to be fascinating. And I, I really think that this is anybody's guess about what's going to happen in that primary. And this is what Tim Alberta had to say about that. He says, if DeSantis lets Trump bluff him out of running for president after winning Florida by a million and a half votes, it will be a fold for the political ages. Make no mistake, DeSantis should now be considered the betting favorite to win the GOP nomination in 24. Now, I'm not quite there yet because when you poll voters, at least up until now, they've been pretty clear that they like Trump in the Republican Party. But who knows how this elect- this particular set of results might affect that. Sixth takeaway, election deniers are making it through. Not all of them, but some of them. 538 said the following a few minutes ago. They said there are now 14 gubernatorial and secretary of state races where election deniers are on the ballot that have been called. More than half of these election deniers have won their races so far with 12 races to go. Takeaway number seven, abortion mattered. NBC News now projects that Michigan's Proposal 3 has enshrined a right to abortion in that state's constitution. Similar uh, measures passed in Vermont and California, and uh, they're still too close to call in Kentucky and Montana. This comes as exit polls look pretty clear that a lot of voters were motivated by the abortion issues. So for voters under 30, the NBC News exit poll that I saw has uh, over 50% of Uh, female voters under 30 listing abortion as their number one issue. And even 35% of men 
naming it as their number one issue uh, under 30. So we, I, I think we're going to see like pretty good youth turnout in this election. And I think you're going to see that they were motivated by abortion. And we all know suburban women play a huge role in these races. I wouldn't be shocked if at the end of the day, when we start parsing through this data, we see that abortion played a huge role here. Number eight, there are some key Democratic holds at the state level. Kathy Hochul uh, held on in New York and won pretty commandingly, it seems, uh, in the gubernatorial election there. That was supposed to be a lot closer. Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania won his gubernatorial race. That was called really early in the night. Tim Waltz of Minnesota. Jocelyn Benson, Secretary of State of Michigan, won re-election. The Colorado Secretary of State, New Mexico Secretary of State, and Minnesota Secretaries of State. So when I talk about the election denialism, it wasn't all election deniers winning. You saw some candidates who had different perspectives on the uh, the results of the 2020 election win. And so, you know, w- there's a lot that still can happen out West. So we'll continue to update you on that. Number nine takeaway, the narrow GOP majority in the House, which at this point, as I'm talking, is probably the likely scenario here, is going to be a problem for Speaker McCarthy when if he becomes Speaker, if the GOP goes on to hold on. And... This is because there are Marjorie Taylor Greene types within the party, and then there are more moderate members within the party, and he's got to keep everybody happy. And a lot of these people are not going to want to go along to play along. And, you know, there's some people more loyal to Trump. We all know that Trump has had some, you know, misgivings about McCarthy in the past, especially in and around January 6th. And so a lot of people are looking at this and saying, McCarthy's in trouble here. Tim Alberta said, folks, if you're wondering how Speaker McCarthy would handle a six or seven seat majority, it's worth considering they may never be a Speaker McCarthy at all because he's got to win basically all those votes in order to win an election. Because when they go to vote on the majority speaker, everybody votes. So the Democrats vote and the Republicans vote. You have to get the majority in order to become the Speaker of the House. And remember this weird quirk that anybody can become Speaker of House in the United States. Trump could become Speaker of the House. I could become Speaker of the House. So I think there could be some interesting parlor games being played here. Here's what Roberto Costa had to say, say about this. He said, several House GOP sources tell CBS, CBS after midnight tonight that they're now increasingly worried that if the GOP wins a narrow House majority, it'll be utter chaos for McCarthy and the leadership team. Remember, MTG, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and her allies would have much more sway in a tight GOP House, the sources predict. You know, one other takeaway here is, you know, I haven't been that much of a Pelosi fan. It is worth remembering that she's had a pretty narrow majority in the in the House these past few years. It is remarkable how little we hear about how hard that has been for her. Uh, and it'll be interesting how we compare that to how McCarthy's going. Takeaway number 10, the final takeaway. Let's pretend for a second that the Democrats hold on to their 50-50 quasi-majority in the Senate, because you have the tiebreaker, the vice president, and that the GOP takes the House. What will be fascinating here, I think people will ask, well, what does that mean? Well, that means gridlock. Obviously, we're not going to get a lot of bills passed, if any, at that point. That's one. Number two is you're going to see a lot of investigations in the House, impeachments, yada, yada. But when an impeachment happens, it goes to the Senate eventually for a trial, I don't know exactly what would be impeached, but we're hearing a lot of rhetoric on that for what they would impeach Biden on. Uh, that would go to the Senate for a trial. Schumer would run that trial. That's one sort of, I would say, small thing, but it could be big depending on what's going on, that 
you know, it was big when McConnell was doing it, for example, and he was running those trials. That's one power that the Senate could have just on its own is running that trial. But the biggest power that the Senate has is that they confirm judges and they confirm cabinet appointees. So if Biden is able to hold on to the Senate, he won't get a lot more passed. I think we will look back on the Biden presidency, at least the first term, and essentially all the big legislation he will ever have gotten passed has already happened. But he could get a lot of judges through. And that is really what's at stake here as different parties are fighting it out now in the closing stretches of what could be a many days counting saga to figure out who won these elections and potentially a 30-day runoff in Georgia. So obviously, we'll continue to cover this. We'll be back Thursday at Lost Debate Podcast. Ricky will be back with me, so we'll hear her perspective on all of this. Uh, and I will continue to layer in stories that have nothing to do with this election because, honestly, that's our bread and butter. There are a lot of things happening out in the world outside of this election, but there's a lot of at stake here. So we're going to keep coming back to this until everything's wrapped up. And and as a reminder, go out there, rate, review, and subscribe us. Say good things about us on there. And we really appreciate you being with us. And it's possible that some things have changed between the time we're recording this. And we'll update you on Thursday.